Hey, if you're visiting with us, I just want you to know my name's Kyle. I'm so glad that you're here today. I just want to say welcome to you. As Alan echoed, we're, we're just grateful you're here. Y'all make sure to, to see Miss Kay and grab a gift before you go today. Um, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is where we'll continue today. As you're turning there, I just want to say thank you so much to all the congrats, all the prayers, all of the uh, food, all of the uh, just warm wishes and, and those things over the last week since Patricia uh, gave birth to our fourth child, our third son, Haddon Caleb. He is doing well. She is doing well. Everybody's doing well. So thank you so much. Amen? Amen. Give yourselves a hand for that at least. Yeah. Okay, there you go. All right, super enthusiastic this morning. All right, here we go. So uh, another thank you. I just want to mention this. Trunk or Treat last week was outstanding. So if you helped with that in any way, you set up a car, you helped set up, you helped do anything, you just showed up and, and took uh, part in it, I want to say thank you so much for that. Y'all give each other a hand for that, a big hand for that. A lot of people worked hard for that. Thank you guys so much. Uh, I think it's safe to say that was the first annual Trunk or Treat. Amen? We're going to keep doing that. That was awesome. Uh, Last thing I want to say thank you to is uh, last night, as most of you are aware, there was a fish fry up here. Uh, it wasn't really sponsored by the church actually at all. It was just held here. Uh, Chantel Price did an outstanding work getting all of that organized, so y'all give her a hand, would you? Um, give everyone a hand who cooked and made all that possible. Amen. Y'all go ahead one more. Yep, big, big hand here. All right. And uh, lastly, I just want to add to that, the fish fry was a fundraiser for Brad and Carly Neal. Uh, if you're not aware, Carly was diagnosed with cancer earlier this year, and so the church, so many people within the church, have stepped up and really loved them very well, helped support them very well, helped raise a ton of money. Even last night, there was just north of $3,000 raised. That's profit for them. So thank you guys so, so much for loving one another the way that you do it's contagious, it's amazing to watch, and nothing makes me more proud as your pastor than to see that. So y'all give each other a hand. Give God a hand. Amen. All right. Now, let's get down to business. John chapter 13. We're going to continue John's gospel today by walking through and finishing up chapter 13. John, uh, for those of you who may not know, John was the disciple whom Jesus was closest to. Uh, John wrote this gospel as a testimony to tell us about Jesus. He wanted to tell us the things that Jesus said, the things that He did. He wanted us to, uh, to see Christ, the reason He came, the, and, and to see in Him His character and His nature, mostly that He was the glory of God revealed, as John says in chapter 1, for the purpose of, all of that for the purpose of this, to help us see Jesus, yes, but why see Jesus? Do we want to just see Jesus and then walk away? Absolutely not. We want to see Jesus in such a way that our lives are transformed, that we believe in Him, amen, that we follow Him, that we treasure Him more than anything else in this world. And so it's to believe that He is the Son of God, as John says in chapter 20, verse 31, and to find life in His name, amen. So this is our purpose today. This is why we've gathered, is to look at John's gospel, to see Jesus, to believe in Him, maybe more so than you do already, to go deeper into that. Maybe it'll be for the first time that you look at Jesus today and your heart leaps in belief for Him. But whatever the purpose is for us looking today, it's namely that we would all believe more in Him so that we find life in His name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You so much 
uh, for the opportunity to be in your word, to be in the presence of one another, to be namely God with you. And so we thank you that you're here with us. We ask now that you would speak to us in a way that transforms our life. Lord, would you change us today, help us to see Christ more fully than we did before we walked in here, and help us to follow him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last week, just kind of as a way to catch you up, we transitioned from Jesus' public ministry. Sorry, I said last week. Last week, Jasper preached. Y'all give Jasper a hand for stepping in last minute. Amen? Yes, thank you. Uh, makes it easier to have kids when somebody will do that. So there you go. Um, anyway, two weeks ago when I was here, we looked at Jesus' uh, transition from his public ministry into this private ministry, which will be the last, the final hours of his life. This is between he and his disciples. And so last week he begins by washing their feet. He says that this was to show them that uh, essentially that Christians and to show us that Christians have a high standing in Christ because of our faith in Christ. We have this high standing in him, but that does not give us reason to be proud. In fact, it gives us reason to go low in service toward one another that we should give ourselves joyfully to humble service for others, and that we should give ourselves joyfully to daily cleansing of sin. He ends that by saying, Jesus does, by saying this, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever receives the one I send receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives the one who sent Me. So what we see there is that you and I as Christians have this remarkably high calling to take Jesus to the world, to take Jesus to unbelievers. We get to represent him, if you will. And so he's going to move now into this portion of the text in verse 21. We'll pick up in verse 21. I'll read through 38 and then we'll talk about what all this means. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the, the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow 
So you have denied me three times. So these are, in this text, there are at least two observations about the love of Christ that I want us to see. And then there are at least two, uh, they lead to at least two practical implications for our lives today also. So first, let's just start with what we see about the love of Christ this morning. All right, so if you're taking notes, you've got your worship guide. It's a little gray this morning. That's my fault. I didn't check the toner before I printed them. I apologize. But anyway, all right, so put your glasses on and, and, and read it along with us. Christ's love is characterized by, number one, a burdened love for sinners. Christ's love is characterized by, number one, a burdened love for sinners. Right out of the gate in this text, what we see are these words. Jesus was troubled in His spirit, and He testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. Now this is the second time that we see this phrase about Jesus saying, I am troubled in My spirit. The, the, the word troubled means to be unsettled. It means to be stirred up. It means to be in turmoil. This is a deeper troubling than, than even the one I felt last night every time LSU's offense took the field, right? I mean, every time they showed up, I was troubled in my spirit, like, oh, this is bad. This is way deeper than that, much deeper than that, much more significant than even that. He's troubled for at least two reasons. One, as we mentioned the last time we looked at the reason he was troubled, in chapter 12, what we saw was that he was troubled because he was about to take God's wrath for sin on himself. That there was certainly a penalty for sin, and that penalty was death. And that the Jesus being perfect, being with God from the beginning, was now about to have to be separated from God in that moment on the cross as he bore God's wrath for sin for us. And so he's troubled over that. He's deeply troubled over that, but he's also troubled over the brokenness of this world. If you notice, what he says is, it says Jesus was troubled in the Spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is about to betray me. So he's, he's troubled over the brokenness in the world. He's troubled over the betrayal of, G, of Judas. He's, tr he's, he's troubled over the fallen nature of mankind here. Now, this is why I think John's writing is so masterful. Immediately after Judas leaves, John writes... It, and it was night. Did you notice that? He said, and it was night. John has used the imagery of darkness and light since chapter 1 in verse 4 where we see that he describes Jesus. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 9, he skips down. He says, he calls Jesus the true light. Now, John is only using this imagery of Christ because Christ uses this imagery of Himself. If you'll think back to Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, He says this, He says, And this is the judgment on the world, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Jesus is so burdened for sinners that he enters the darkness. That he, as the true light, comes into, condescends to the darkness. Amen? 
That He enters into our sin-marred world. That He enters into it to become true light for us. His soul is troubled by man's open rebellion against God. And so He, who knew no sin, meaning He knew no darkness in Himself, will become sin for us who are utterly dark in ourselves, that we might become light with Him, or in Paul's words, that we might become the very righteousness of God with Him. This is the contrast that we see here. Judas loves the darkness more than he loves Christ. His own evil works. He's more infatuated with that. He's more infatuated with 30 pieces of silver than he is with the nature of Jesus, with God. And that caused Jesus' soul to be deeply troubled. If you will, remember in John 11.35 when Jesus weeps. Now why does He weep? He weeps over the death of His friend, Lazarus. Now what's, what's unique about this or what's so compelling about this is that Jesus knew that in a few short moments He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That Lazarus would live again. That they would rejoice and, and there would be a party. But in that moment, Jesus wept. Jesus wept because of death. Death was never God's intention for our lives. What was the curse? It's that now you may surely die because you ate of this, right? In that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Death is a result of the curse. It's a result of the fall. The pain we feel now in life, the sin we feel now in life, is a result of the fall. Everything goes back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And so Jesus comes, He enters into this darkness, and He feels the weight of it. It crushes Him in His soul. He's deeply troubled. He's in turmoil over it. And even knowing the outcome, He weeps. Even knowing the outcome, He's troubled because of what He sees that sin has done. This is another example of of Jesus being troubled over the fallen nature of this world. Jesus in that moment, and in this moment that we see now, He's burdened for us. But He's also burdened with us over the pain that sin brings to this life. Again, I say it, it's precisely this burden that his desi- and His desire to save sinners that Jesus goes to the cross. This is why Jesus says in verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. This is why He says this. He's saying, now in this moment of darkness, in this moment where darkness is coming, in this moment where I will be handed over to be killed, in this moment right now, will I shine the brightest in glory for God, and God will shine gloriously through me. This is what Jesus is proclaiming. Now here's the deal, if if you're an unbeliever in here today, you say, man, I'm not so sure about Christ, I'm not so sure about Jesus. Maybe you're a doubter. Maybe you're someone who isn't following Jesus today for some reason or another. Then please hear me when I say this. God loves you. Jesus loves you. He he knows your burden because He already carried it. He sits now as an empathetic Savior in heaven, meaning He is not one who is distant from our mess, but He is one who knows the terrible pain we feel each day because of sin. And because of this dark world, and He still enters into it with us today. 
if you aren't following Jesus because of unbelief or doubt, I beg you today to lay down your pursuit of false light, things that only lead to death, and to come to Christ, who is the true light, who is the rock of ages, who is the only stable thing that you can count on in this life. He loves you and He wants to save you. Believe Him, trust Him, and treasure Him above all else in such a way that you will follow Him wherever He leads you today. Amen? The second thing we see about the love of Christ is that there's this unconditional love for His own. In John chapter 13, verse 1, a couple of weeks ago, we read this. It says, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. If you come to Jesus, if you trust Him as your Savior, believe Him as your Lord, you treasure Him above all else, and you're, you're following Him, then you have this beautiful promise in John chapter 13, verse 1, that says that He will love you unconditionally, that He has loved you unconditionally, that He'll continue to love you unconditionally, all the way to the end. In verses 36 through 38, in that little interaction there with Peter, we see Jesus' unconditional love on beautiful display. Two weeks ago, we saw that Peter was already washed by the Spirit. He says, those of you who have been washed have no need to wash again except your feet. So he was telling Peter, you've already been washed. What did we say? That was a Titus 3-5 washing. That was a washing by regeneration of the Holy Spirit, renewal of the Holy Ghost. That, that's what had taken place in Peter already. He had already been washed. He was one of his own already. But there was need for daily cleansing. So what we know about Peter is that he's one of his own. He's, he's in. He's not Judas. He's in. And, and here's what we see about Peter. Sure that he is one of God's children, but now on that same night and in that same moment, essentially, it was two weeks later for us, but it was immediately for them, we see that Peter is, is told that, that you are mine, and then immediately after he is told, you will deny me. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter thinks so much of his fellowship that, that he says, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. I will, I will go wherever you are going. I will give my very life for you. To which Jesus responds, will you lay down your life for me? Will you? Will you, Peter? Because I tell you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Can you imagine the gut punch that Peter felt in that moment? Can you imagine it? But, but for you and for me, as believers, are we not the same? That, that we have become His of no doing of our own, that He has saved us, and we are washed by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost? Yet... Do we not deny Him over and over in so many ways in our life daily? Do we not deny His power? Do we not deny His beauty? Men, when we log on to our computers and we think we're alone or we're on our cell phones, do we not deny the beauty of Christ when we begin to search for things we ought not search for? Unmarried folk in here today. Do you not deny the beauty of Christ when you trade Him for premarital sex? Do we not deny the beauty of Christ when we trade Him 
for drugs or for alcohol or for depression or for television or for our sports teams, God forbid, or for our political parties, God forbid? Do we not deny the power of Christ in those moments? Of course we do. Of course we do. I am with you. I am chief in this. This is not me looking at you saying, how dare you? This is me leading the pack. Say, how dare us? Of course we do. Praise God He's more faithful to us than we are to Him. Praise God His love is unconditional. If it were conditional, we would have lost it already. This is the unconditional love of Christ. It's a love that goes down deep, if you will. It's a love that chases you through the idiotic moments of your life where you too overestimate your ability to follow Christ. These words, you cannot follow me now, simply mean you cannot follow me because of your sin. You cannot give your life and be saved. I have to do that. This world needs Christ. This world, Jesus is saying, needs me. They need a perfect sacrifice. So no, Peter, you cannot follow me because this dark world needs a Savior and you're not it. But I am. I am. This is the hope. that Christ is the Savior. Then Jesus says, but, but you will follow me afterward. Praise God for that. The, the, the buts in the Bible are often magnificent. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. There's a double meaning here, a bit of one anyway. On one hand, Jesus is saying to all, believe, to all who would believe in him that there is a reward of eternal life to come. If you'll follow Christ today, if you'll give up your life right now, if you'll lose your life for the sake of Christ, then you will gain eternal life. Amen? That's our eternal reward. That's our hope. That's our only hope in life. Is that as I put to death my sin nature, as I give up the life that I so desperately want for my own self, as I put that to death and I take on Christ, He gives me something better. Far better. It's my hope. It's your hope. It's your only hope. So we have that. He's saying, by faith in me, you will follow me there. You will be on the other side of this one day. But not yet. Right now, there's much work to be done in you. There's much work to be done in this kingdom, for this kingdom. And I want to use you for that. Praise God that we may, right? We've been invited into this. And on the other hand, what Jesus is doing here is nothing short of magnificent. He is prophesying about Peter's life. Peter, you will deny me tonight, yes, but soon you will love me so much that you do give your life for me, that you do go to a cross for my sake. But believers, you must know that Jesus loves you enough to stay with you through your come on man moments. That when you're foolish and stupid and ignorant, Jesus is there. And He's none of those things. He's none of those things. That, that He is ours. That He lived perfectly for us. That He upholds us in those moments where we cannot uphold ourselves. He supports us. God forbid we think we're standing on our own two feet. We're not. We must see more and more that we're standing on Christ if we stand at all. 
He says, Peter, you will deny me tonight, but soon you won't. He loved you before you were saved. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you the same now. That hasn't changed because you call yourself saved or because you follow Him or because you are saved. It doesn't change. He, he still loves you. He still died for you. He, he still regenerated your heart. He's still sanctifying you. He's transforming you. He's helping you get rid of the old man and take on the new man. He's doing that. He's helping you by His grace. And by His grace, you will split heaven wide open one day to spend eternity with Jesus Christ, to be face-to-face -face with the One that you held on to through this life, even when it was most difficult. Because He upheld you, because He got you there. He, he loves His own. Believers, you will not undo what God has done because you didn't do anything to make God do it to begin with. Jesus was sent by God because God so loved this broken, sin-marred world that He wanted to save sinners. Sinners like you and like me. That was God's doing. He wanted to save us. So trust Him and, and treasure Him. As John says in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, he says, we love Him because He first loved us. And His love is not conditional. If it were, we would have never qualified for it. His love is clearly unconditional. He knew what He was getting into when He chose to save you. And, and the work that He starts in you, He is faithful to complete to the very end. Of this, I'm sure. Amen? And the main point of all of this, Jesus gets to in, in verse 34. This is what He wants us to see. This is what He wanted His disciples to see in that moment. This is what He wants us to see as His disciples today. A new commandment I give to you, he says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what we need to know today is that the command to love one another wasn't new. That's not the new command. That was around since the Mosaic Law. That was, that's around since Leviticus and Deuteronomy. To love your neighbor as yourself. That's been there. So what's the new command? Well, the new command is to love the way that Jesus loved. Notice the colon there. The new command I give to you, that you love one another, colon, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So, so that's the new command, is to love the way that Jesus loves. He says that this kind of supernatural love will be your witness to all people that you are mine. Wow! Everybody just take a deep breath and let it out. How incredibly freeing that it's our love that is our witness. That it's our love for one another. It's our love even for our enemies that is our witness. How incredibly freeing that it's that. Well, you may say, so it's not my apologetic ability? No, friend, it's not. Though that can be useful at times. It's not my ability to defend whether or not Adam had a belly button. No. Though certainly entertaining. It's not my stance then on the end times and how we'll get out of this place. No, not at all. And if you were going to... Sorry. No, it's not. And though that can be fun to talk about, right? 
It's not my ability then to boycott businesses. It's not my ability to win others to Christ by what I say I'm not going to buy anymore. No, it's not at all. And to be quite honest with you, if you were going to do that, then you'd have to become totally self-sufficient. Like, for example, Procter & Gamble. You've heard of Procter & Gamble? Raise your hand, yes? Procter & Gamble, largest producer of household goods in the world. They produce various detergents, various soaps, various medicines, various foods, all of which I promise are in your cabinet at home now. Did you know that Procter & Gamble supports both the LGBT movement and Planned Parenthood? Monetarily, gives money to those things. And some of us might be appalled at that. But there's no way you're getting around those things is what I'm getting at. Not to mention your own tax dollars support much of those things too. So you're not going to become totally self-sufficient in this way is all I'm trying to point out. Boycotting won't win the lost and it will not unite believers. It just won't. So I just say let's stop with that foolishness. Because Jesus gives us a better way here. Jesus gives us a way that He says will actually work. He says love will win the lost. Love will unite believers together. Love will. As Pastor Ray Ortland says, I love the way he puts this, he says, love is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing to the world. <sighs> yes. And I can do that, right? Like, like you can do that. You can love people. I can love people. I can do that well. I can be terrible at that at times, but I can apologize and do that well. Like, by God's grace, I've learned to love people better and better every year of my life. He'll do the same in you. This is what He does. This is His authorized way for us to be convincing. There's no way He won't do it. This is what He wants from us. This is what He wants for us. Love will reach the sin-bound, broken, lost person in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your supermarket, and in your homes. Yes, homes. If you're a parent in here, the very first unbeliever that you have an opportunity to share the love of Christ with, your child. There, there's never at any time more unbelievers gathered together in this church than in our children's ministry. Think about it. They're important. They're magnificently important. The role that we have as moms and dads to be ambassadors, not authoritarians, but to be ambassadors in our kids' lives for the love of Christ is huge. It matters for eternity. Let us do that well. Not to mention our workplaces, our neighborhoods, the supermarkets. Love will unite believers in such a way that we weep with one another when someone's hurting. That we rejoice with one another when someone rejoices. Right? And this, this is huge. Love causes you to bear all things. Love causes you to believe all things. Love causes you to hope all things for all people. That's magnificent. Can you imagine living in a world? Maybe it's just us right here together. But living in such a way that we give one another the benefit of the doubt? Holy cow, how transforming would that be? Instead of just assuming the worst all the time, hoping for the worst almost it seems. Imagine a place where we believe the best for one another. Where we, we, we bore things together. 
No, you don't have to go through that alone. We're here with you. Your marriage doesn't have to struggle without help. We're here with you. You don't have to deal with rebellious teenagers and all of that. We're here with you. You don't have to struggle with addiction to to various things. We're here for you. We love you. We're going to bear these things together. We're not going to talk bad about you. We're going to hope that God would miraculously deliver you from all of those things. And He will. That's the transformative nature of love within a body. Love transforms the way you live in this world altogether. changes the way you see everything. And all of that happens because we realize how much Christ has loved us, how much He has forgiven us. The love of Christ in us is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing to the world. In other words, Christ's love is our witness. But it doesn't happen magically. Christ's love becomes our witness when we develop, if you're taking notes, here's your cue, a burden for sinners. Christ's love becomes our witness when we develop a burden for sinners. We've seen how Jesus had a burdened love for sinners. I just want to kind of drive this point home with a a short story from Luke chapter 7. I'm just going to read it to you because I I think it's fascinating. In verse 36, we see one of the Pharisees asked him, talking about Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at that table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet and her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointments. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her own tears and wiped them with her own hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Just a fascinating look. In summary, what he's saying is, To the one who has been forgiven much, they love much. Now, was the Pharisee 
any less of a sinner than the woman? Yes or no? No. Uh, the correct answer is always no. <laughs> there are no less or more sinners than others. You, once a sinner, you're a sinner. The difference was the woman realized her sin. The woman knew she needed a Savior. The Pharisee did not. And what happens when you realize your sin, you realize how broken you are, and you begin to look at Christ, you cannot help but love Him. He is lovely. And so I think once you know how much you've been forgiven, then your love grows both vertically and horizontally at the same time. You, you will love God more, that's the vertical love, as you grow in your understanding of Jesus, as you begin to see your true self. I've told you this often, the more I mature in Christ, the more I realize just how gross I am, how much I needed Him. And as you love God more, you'll also love others more, especially unbelievers. Rather than sit on your high horse and judge others like Simon the Pharisee, you'll become more like Paul in Romans 10.1 where he writes, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Amen. When you have been forgiven much, you will love those who don't know the forgiveness of God more and more each day. I encourage you to do this. Write down some names of people you know that you're not sure if they know Christ or not. Maybe you are sure. Maybe it's two names. Maybe it's one name. Maybe it's three names. Maybe it's 20 names. I don't know. Write them down. Begin to pray for them. And when you pray... Pray for not only for them, but beg the Lord to give you a boldness to share the gospel with those people in your life. That, that you're the ambassador, remember? You're the one who has the high calling to be a representative to the world for Jesus. That's not just on me as a pastor. That's on all of us as disciples of Christ. That's, that's our God-given nature. That's our high calling together to share the Lord with the lost. Beg the Lord to give you that boldness. Charles Spurgeon once said this. It's the most incredible statement about evangelism I've ever heard in my life. That's your cue to listen. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Whew. Sisters and brothers, we must become more and more burdened for unbelievers. We must work each day as God's ambassadors. We, we are His chosen way to spread the gospel. It's us. It's the church. If people must perish... Let them go, do so while leaping over our sober warnings, by bursting through our arms of prayer, and by ignoring the love of Christ that's within us. The second thing, Christ's love becomes our witness when we develop an unconditional love for one another. This is where we'll finish up today. Jesus says, by this... People will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you know that in the New Testament there are 59 at least one another statements. 
In summary, what these statements are saying is, or what they're teaching us, is to dwell with one another in love, to dwell with one another in humility, in respect, and in encouragement, and in unity. And Philemon, I just love the way Paul says that the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He calls that body of believers refreshing to one another. When people got together there, they were refreshed just having been together. It was a life-giving place. Much the way we feel when we come together here, I hope. Paul also said that one benefit of Christian relationships there in Philemon was to have our hearts refreshed by one another. What we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the foundation of the church, the building of the church, and throughout history now as we can look back, is that God never intended for Christians to live independently from one another. But, but rather, what He wanted for them, what He intended for them, and what He does for them is He binds them together by the very Spirit of God in powerful, God-glorifying, relationship-reconciling unity with one another. And not just as a new community. It's not just some other club. It's not just some other get-together. It's not just something else. This isn't Kiwanis or anything like that. This, this is us uniting together in a new kind of community, if you will. Pastor Ray Ortland describes it this way. He says, churches, local churches, expressions like us, he says, are living proof that the good news is true. That Jesus is not a theory, but He is real. As He gives back to us our humanness and its doctrine and culture, words and deeds, such a church makes visible the restored humanity only Christ can give. This is our purpose. It's to live in such a way that we become human again. And we become fully devoted followers of the Lord. Fully realizing that life is with Him. Francis Schaeffer says this about the church. He says, If we do not show beauty in the way that we treat one another, then in the eyes of the world, that one matters, but, and in the eyes of our own children, maybe that one matters more to you, you are destroying the truth that you proclaim. In other words, if you're not showing the beauty of Christian love in the way that we live, then what we're doing is we're denying what we proclaim. We're saying we love Jesus, yes, but in the way that we live, we're denying the power of that godliness. Lord, help us not do that. Amen? I love the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.32 where he says to them there, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's it, isn't it? Isn't that the essence of this new kind of community? In a worldly community, what happens is strife wins over reconciliation every single day, does it not? The world doesn't long for reconciliation. The world longs for dominance, if you will. The world longs for self-expression. The world longs to be free in anything we want to do. The world doesn't want to be united to anything unless we're united in that. Nothing seems to be more important to the world than division, at least by my observation. But this shouldn't be so for Christians, should it? Christians ought not live this way. 
Unfortunately, it often is the case because I think we let the message of the world infiltrate the message from God. Namely, I think Satan wins in that area a lot of times. I think his biggest goal for the church is to divide them, to make them less powerful. This is why the new kind of community is so important. This is why loving one another matters more than anything else in this life. Doctrine's great. Beliefs are great. We can't live for the Lord unless we understand who He is and why He saved us and understand our sin and all of those things. I'm with you 100% in all of that. But if those things, those beliefs, are not transforming the way you love one another, then they're pointless. And you're denying the power of those beliefs. It has to transform who we are. It must. If it doesn't, we must apologize. We must forgive. We must move forward with grace and mercy, gentleness and honesty. It's not about saving face. It's about glorifying God at all costs. What if we took Paul's words seriously? What if we learned to love one another unconditionally, with kindness, with tender hearts, with forgiveness, just as God in Christ forgave us? What if we lived that way? Well, Kyle, that sounds really hard. <laughs> yeah, it does. Of course it does. It matters. Anything that matters is difficult. It's the most meaningful way to live. There's nothing more significant for us. So what if we're failing at that? What if we're, we're stinking it up a bit in that department at loving one another? What, what if you sit there and you say, but Kyle, you don't know what so-and-so did to me. Francis Schaeffer explains how to live this way by showing us what to do when we have failed to live this way. He says, if we have failed to love one another as Jesus commanded, individually or even corporately, there's something going on in the body and we need to to address it. He says two things should happen. Number one, the offender says, I'm sorry. You've caused an offense, you admit it. I'm sorry. Meaningful apology. Hoping for reconciliation. Knowing that it may mean not everything will be perfect or not everything will be the way you think it should be but apologizing anyway. That's hard, isn't it? Anybody ever found it easy to apologize? Man, it's often very freeing on the backside, but it's often very hard on the front side. The second thing that Schaefer adds is the offended then says, I forgive you. And that is often even harder than saying I'm sorry. We've got a rule in our house. I don't know if it's a good rule or not. I think it is. I created it. <laughs> when, when brother or sister or mommy or daddy, whoever is apologizing to someone else, when we say, I'm sorry for what I've done to you, I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry I hit you, whatever. Mom and dad aren't saying that to the kids, by the way, just so we clarify, I don't need DHS showing up. We're not hitting the kids. Anyway, but when a brother or sister hits one another and they walk up and say, and they're told you need to say, I'm sorry. They don't want to do that. Oftentimes it comes out, I'm sorry. No, that doesn't count. You need to humble yourself. 
get outside yourself and know that you, you inflicted harm or pain in some way and you need to apologize for that. And they'll say, I'm sorry. In your own life, when someone says, I'm sorry, what do you normally say? It's okay. All right, don't worry about it. Let me tell you something. That is not nearly as powerful or as meaningful as I forgive you. I forgive you. When someone says, I forgive you, there's a burden release. When somebody says, it's okay, you know in your mind, no, it's not okay. That's why I'm here apologizing to you. So we make our kids, we make mommy and daddy even say, I forgive you. I think here we ought to be saying, I forgive you. Sure, what you did hurt, it harmed me, but I forgive you as God in Christ forgave me. How powerful is that? That is how we display Jesus to the world. Of, of this I'm convinced right here, that this kind of Christ-infused and inspired love for others will be, God will be glorified in us. So I say let's kneel at the feet of Jesus, like the woman in Luke 7. Let's worship Him, let's adore Him, let's love Him, let's be grateful to Him for saving us from our sins. Absolutely. Let's love Him with all that we are. But let us not stop there. Let us develop in us a burden for the loss in such a way that we begin to pray for them, we begin to tell them about Jesus. But not just Jesus. Not just, man, there's Jesus and here's you and and, and what you're doing is, is sinful, and so there's Jesus. <laughs> right? Let, let's tell them about the welcoming arms of Jesus. The Jesus who said to the Samaritan woman on her sixth husband, that I am a well of living water. That Jesus says to all of us who are weary and heavy laden, come to me with arms stretched wide. That Jesus says to any who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I will fill you. That Jesus says to anyone who is broken or bound by their sin, I will free you and heal your broken heart. Let us tell people of that Jesus. The one who has saved us. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come into this world to condemn the world. Christians ought to go with the message of, I'm not going into the world to condemn the world. We ought to go with the message of I'm going into the world to see the lost saved. I want to tell them about the love of Jesus. One day condemnation is coming, absolutely. Judgment comes. But right now, right now we get to share the love of Christ with people. We get to tell them about a Christ who wants to save them, who wants to see them made whole, who wants to see their humanity restored, their dignity restored. Let us be convinced of that as we go into the world. And then finally, let us love, as we're loving Christ more and more, let us love one another unconditionally in such a way that we weep with one another, in such a way that we rejoice with one another, in such a way that we honor one another, in such a way that we're apologizing to one another when we screw up, in such a way that we're forgiving one another. Not it's okaying one another, but we're forgiving one another. And let us love each other in such a way that we're stirring up in one another love for good works. Amen? By the grace of God, listen to me, by God's grace, you and I can do this.
We can be the light of the world. We can be the salt of the earth. We can love in such a way that we see people saved and in such a way that we're united as a body. Nothing is more significant to us than that. Amen? If you believe it, say amen. Amen. All right, we go. Would you stand to your feet this morning?